Okay, have a seat and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 4 tonight. And the plan is to get through 4 and 5. I was initially planning on going through 4, 5, and 6 and realized that was a little too ambitious. So I shut 6 down and we are probably going to be much, much thorough in what we're going to look at tonight. So quick review. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Why verse 18? Because Paul greeted us in verses 1 through 17. So in verse 18 of chapter 1 through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul sets out to remove any possibility any argument against someone who would say that they are a good person. So he talks about sinners, different types of sinners. He starts off with the immoral sinners. That's the most obvious. And then he goes from the immoral sinner, and then he addresses the moral sinners. That's right, you could be a moral sinner. And then he talks about a religious sinner. And then he talks about the skeptical sinner, the one who is always skeptical about the things of God, and he deals with that. And basically, it comes down to he's trying to express to us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that there is no one who's righteous or meets the qualification or standard of God. No, not one. So once that's established, it was pretty rough going through and just sort of having the mirror put up to us and realizing that we're pretty bad people. We're sinful from the time of birth, and we are separated from God, and that really explains a lot of what goes on in life. So that, that the biblical understanding, the theology of, of mankind is the theology that we are depraved, total depravity, all mankind. So then the good news starts in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. So we go from sin to now we're discussing salvation. So notice in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, but now, and I mentioned last week, that is the greatest two words that you and I will ever hear, but now. Everything about our sinful condition is what it is, but now there's something different. So he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who, what? Believe. 
for there is no difference. So there it is. So there's the answer. So he's talking about our salvation now. He's talking about our salvation and painting this picture to help us understand that salvation is separate from good works. In other words, because we're sinners by nature, that there's no amount of good works or deeds that a person can do to be right with God. And so because of that, then we need something apart from good deeds, apart from the law. That's why he's now painting this picture about our salvation. So the key is, and we're, we're chapter 4 and chapter 5 are all about our salvation. Chapter 6 starts looking at our sanctification. So it's very important to know the difference between justification and sanctification. Very important. Paul, in talking about salvation, is talking about justification, which means he's talking about how sinful people can be right with God. How sinful people can be declared like in a courtroom. Sinful people who are guilty before God, that they can be declared innocent. And that's what the word justified means. So he tells us now there's something outside of the law because the law, think about the Ten Commandments, which uh, reflect the moral character of God, God, the holiness of God. And as we, we have get, been given the Ten Commandments, so the, the Jews receive them, and then those are the moral requirements Because that's what God is like, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments uh, are are not just an outward action, but they're also an inward action in our thoughts. If we think things, uh, lustful thoughts, angry thoughts, um, hurtful thoughts, hateful thoughts, things that are not of God, just shows that 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 is part of our sin nature. So the law just shows us that we're sinners. It can't do anything about it. It's like looking in a mirror. It just shows us we have a pimple on our forehead, but the mirror can't take it away type of thing. So the the law, the word, it shows us our condition before God, but it can't do anything about it. So that's why Paul is saying there's a righteousness. And why does he say righteousness? Because that is what is required to be right with God. Righteousness. And that's a, a moral perfection that God requires in our thoughts, in our actions, in our intentions. It's, it's a righteous requirement. And so that requirement is perfection. So there's a righteousness that's not found in the law. It's found outside of the law. And so that's where Jesus comes in. And so that's where he's talking about justification. In other words, the way you and I become right with God is not through a process, not through a procedure, not through 10 steps, not through any steps except for the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, genuinely. It's an instantaneously, instantaneous change where we are what John chapter 3 says, we are born again. 
We are made right with God instantaneously, not based on what we do, but based on what He has done. And the way that we access what He has done, because what Jesus has done has made the way, but not everyone accesses the way. And so He tells us how to access the way, and that's by belief. When He says belief, it's not just you believe Jesus existed. It means you're trusting in what Jesus did in order to be right with God. So you're, you're trusting, you're putting all your eggs in that basket. It's like, it's not by anything I do, but it's by what He does, and I believe that, and I'm trusting in that. So if that's you, you've been justified before God, meaning instantaneously you've been made right with God, fellowship has been restored with God. That means that He's given you a new heart, a new spirit. He has filled you with the Holy Spirit. Your sins have been washed away, past, present, and future. You have a guarantee of a future in eternity with God, and He's given you the down payment, the Holy Spirit, as a seal to say you're His. Your name has been written in the book, Lamb's Book of Life, and everything has changed that, like that. Now, when we think about that, to truly understand that, to meditate upon that, is to bring amazing delight to the soul. And in much of our worry and anxiety and anxiousness, much of the solution to that is to meditate and rejoice in our salvation, what God has done, and who we are, and where we're going. All because of His grace, unmerited favor. And so we would do well to continue to be mindful of our salvation, that we would rejoice in our salvation. That in and of itself is enough to send an individual into eternal contentment and joy and peace in their heart and mind, that alone. But we know Satan's always trying to pull us away from that understanding and to think more about problems and things that are going on, to dwell on those things, worry and anxiety. And the answer is to go back to the beginning where we are saved. Go back to where we are justified. And you know, you may be sitting here and thinking, well, I don't, I don't know what to think about. I don't have a lot of things like I understand and we're going to take care of that tonight. So tonight, you're going to have something to think about that you'll always have something to think about, always have something to go through, go to the whole rest of your life. And if you forget something that we talk about tonight, you can just remember Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through Romans chapter 5 is all about my salvation. And you can look at that and go to that and say, wow, I'm saved. Lord, your salvation is so good. Your grace is so amazing. So the second thing, and we're going to talk about that more next week. Lord willing, but then the sanctification. Do not get those mixed up. How long does justification take? Did you snap your fingers? I like that. That was good. She, she was so casual. Like, that was good. So that, that's justification. Ask Amy if you want to know about justification. So that's very important. Don't get that mixed up. 
Sanctification, how long does that take? It's a lifetime. Sanctification is a process to where God works in us to continually make us more like Him. And you know what He does to do that is it's a process, and, and the Bible tells us that it is God's will for the believer, our sanctification. So if you're truly a believer, what God starts, He starts to go to work by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. He starts to go work, He starts working on you to make you more like Him. Now, is that a comfortable process or an uncomfortable process? Sanctification, what would you say? Uncomfortable? Yes, uncomfortable. Why is that uncomfortable? Because this process of God making us like Him is a process to where He separates us from our love of self and our love of the world. And that's often goes through, it feels like stripping, like stripping things away. And as He strips things away, stripping things away that are not of Him so that we can be more like Him. And this is a lifelong process. So justification, instantaneous sanctification begins after justification, and that's where works come in. Works play no part in our salvation. They do play a part in our sanctification. So the works come from the fact that we've been changed on the inside. So if we've truly been changed on the inside, just like a fruit tree, the, you would know what kind of fruit tree it is. How? By the fruit. So you will know what a person's all about by the fruit that comes out of their life. So the works, all these things about works, has nothing to do with justification, nothing to do with salvation, but has a lot to do with sanctification. So those are the things we'll be looking at tonight. But tonight we're going to focus some more on our salvation. So with that, let's look at chapter 4, verse, verse 1. We'll start there. And Paul is just continuing this discussion now about salvation. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? So he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He's going to the father of the Jews. So if he's going to the father's, father of the Jews, which, what does that mean? He's going to the guy in which all the Jews would look at as the one who knows what to do. He's the father of the Jews. He, he's the guy that they look to as their model and their example. So he's going there. So, you know, sometimes people think like in the Old Testament, they were saved by works. And in the New Testament, they were saved by grace. Paul's dealing with that. And he's dealing with that by going to the father of the Jews. So what about Abraham? It says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified, now you guys know that term, right? Snap, Amy. Snap. If Abraham was justified... By works, 
He has something to boast about, but not before God. So did Abraham, and this is the, this is the argument that he's making, so did, did Abraham say and ask all the Jews who are going to come after him, say, I am really good. I am so good. You all and every generation of Jews after me, you need to be good like me because that's the way to do it. And he would be boasting if he said that, right? Look how good I am. I'm gooder than you. I'm gooder than... And so you need to be good like me. That's what they were thinking. That's what the Jews actually thought. So Paul's dealing with that. And he said in verse 3, he says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham did what? He believed God... And it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's, that's such an amazing statement. So all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to the father of Isaac, who eventually all the Jewish nations came. He, it says he was justified. He was justified by believing in God. Now, at that time, he could just believe in, in what he was able to believe, the information and revelation that God had given him. But he believed God. And he believed God so much so that he obeyed God. So the evidence of his belief was that he did what God said. So that would be the second part, the sanctification. But the justification came where he accessed God's forgiveness. So he believed God. So salvation by grace through faith is not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. It's an old, Old Testament thing. It's, it's deep, deeply embedded in the Old Testament. So in verse 4, it says, Now to him who works, in other words, to him who says that the things that they do are good or good enough to be right with God. So he's talking to that person. And I bet a lot of us used to be like that. I used to be like that. I used to think I was a good person and I did enough good stuff to be good and right with God. I bet a lot of us think that. So he's dealing with that. So to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but they're counted as debt. So he's saying if you're trying to be right with God by your good deeds, your thought would be then God owes you heaven. God's in debt to you for how good you are. And he says in verse 5, then he, he, now he goes to David, the two biggest uh, figures in, in Judaism. He said, but to him who does not work, but believes. See the contrast? Those are the two things, works or faith. To him who believes, on him, God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So what makes us acceptable to God and able to meet God's righteous requirements, which is perfection, 
It's faith. Faith makes us righteous. Faith makes us holy. And not just random faith, right? It's faith in Jesus Christ and the work that He's done. So we're trusting in that and saying that is sufficient. That's what I am counting on for my salvation. I'm trusting and believing in that. And He says it's accounted. So when He says it's counted, accounted, what that means is it's getting deposited in your account. That's a way, a way to think about it. So what happens is when we put our faith in Christ, our account gets debited with Christ's righteousness. Not that we have the righteousness, not that we did anything to get it or could have, but it's simply an exchange where he gives us something that he has because we trust in what he says, he accounts and he just puts it in our account. So our account, if you're a believer, you have a spiritual bank account and in that account is the finished works of Jesus Christ. And that's what you go to. That's your ATM. When you go to heaven, that's what you're counting on. That's what you're trusting in, that your bank account is filled to the full with the finished work of Jesus Christ. So he says, and he points to David, he says, just as David, verse 6, also describes the blessedness of the man whom God imputes righteousness. That's another term, imputes, that's, that's just to give over. He imputes righteousness apart from works. So that should just settle. Any conversation you ever have with anybody who says it's by works or you have to work your way to heaven or it's by works and grace or it's both, this should just settle all of that. It's apart from work. So you might want to circle that, highlight that, and just have that somewhere and just say, well, the Bible says that our salvation is completely apart from anything that we do. And here it is right here. Even David said that. And then he quotes from Psalm 32 where David wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and sins whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So there's another Old Testament figure, a big one, David, in Psalm 32, saying that we are blessed when we are forgiven and it's apart from works. And then in verse 9, it says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Now, while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who what? Who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that 
righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision, Abraham, to those who do not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So what he's saying is in, in how this sort of applies to us today and so many that we encounter and talk to is anybody who would say here the, the illustration is used of circumcision and, and the, a Jewish person would say that because they got circumcised, which is an outward act, that that would mean that they're right with God because they fulfilled some procedure that was in the law when that procedure was just a sign or a symbol of God's covenant with the nation of Israel, that they should walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. But they were counting on that, just like somebody who would count on the fact that they are baptized and say, well, I was baptized and I'm saved. We talked about that last week. Or to say, you know, I go to church, so I'm saved. Or you can fill in the blank. Any external thing that one would point to to say, I did that, that's why I'm righteous and saved and in good standing with God, then what this argument is, is Paul is pointing out that in Genesis chapter 15, before Abraham was circumcised in Genesis chapter 17, he was declared righteous in Genesis 15, before he was circumcised. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that circumcision didn't make him righteous. He was righteous before the circumcision. That was just a, a seal or a sign, just like if someone gets baptized. That, that's not when we get saved. It, it could be if we, at that moment, are justified and receive Christ at that moment. But the, the dunking of one under the water, it's a, an external work that doesn't make a person right with God. It reflects that a person is right with God. So that would be a good analogy of what's going on. So someone would say you'd have to be baptized or is counting on that. Paul would be saying, look, that has nothing to do with your righteousness before God because your righteousness before God can only be deposited in your account by your faith and trust that you put in Him. So in verse 13, he says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, like the Jews would say, well, the law was given to Moses and and." Abraham is our father, and so they're saying, well, we're heirs, and our DNA, our genetic makeup is the fact that, that we're Jewish, then that means we're saved, and everybody else is not. He's dealing with that. And he said, again in verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Because the law brings about what? Wrath. 
Why does the law bring about wrath? Because it, it simply points out our condition before God. That's why. And so it's interesting, the word wrath here, it describes that when one is unrighteous, that God's treatment of that one that is not righteous is to pour out His wrath on that person. Why would He do that? It's because sin is so bad. And we pointed that out in chapter 1, 18, verse chapter 3, 20. Sin is so bad. It's contrary to everything that God is, and it destroys His creation. And God is right and just and actually righteous to destroy sin. He's righteous to do that. It's right for Him to do that. So just be sort of like if a wild animal came into this sanctuary. Um, what's a good wild animal? Let's say a what? Okay. A wild boar comes through there. Mark goes out the door there. Don't let him in, Mark. The wild boar comes in and starts goring everybody. We wouldn't say... Look how cute that wild boar is. Look at that. Don't hurt that wild boar. Don't do that. That's mean. Well, that would be weird, right? You would want to shoot it. You would want to get rid of it and do something because it's destructive. It's hurting people. It's killing people. So that's how sin is. That's why God is righteous to deal with sin like that. It's against all that is good and contrary to all that is productive and blessed and building and growing and wholesome and nurturing, it steals, it kills, it hurts. So God's just to deal with that. So as he uses that word wrath, it's interesting because again in verse 15, because the law brings about wrath, it points out our true condition. For where there is no law, there's no transgression. So, for example, if you had a really fast car, so say like um, a Porsche 911, and you just, it's frustrating because you can't drive it fast like you want to. And so you're frustrated, so you say, you know what, I'm going to, go to Germany. And I know they have a place where you can drive it as fast as you want, the Autobahn. And you find a Porsche over there and you start driving 130. And you're like, this is great. Over there, it's okay because there's no speed limit. Here, there's a speed limit, so it's not okay. This is what he's saying. The, the law points out that we're wrong but if there's no law, then we're not really crossing anything if there's no law. So the law was a way for God to show us our transgression. That doesn't mean there wasn't a transgression. It means that we weren't aware of something, a line we were crossing. He's going to talk about that in a second. So in verse 16, it says, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, meaning unmerited favor, nothing that we do to get it. 
so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he's saying Jewish people, they can't just claim Abraham as just theirs. Anybody who has faith in God is now part of the lineage spiritually of Abraham because Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So in a way, we're all kind of spiritual Jews with Abraham being our spiritual father because of our connection by faith, not because of the law or not because of circumcision. So verse 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, speaking of Abraham, in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, so this is, he's going back to a a situation that happened with Abraham when God promised him a son, promised that all the nations, there would be many nations that came from him, but he had gotten old and past the age where you can have children with his wife, Sarah. But he believed in what God said to him, even though outwardly it didn't look like that was going to be a thing or that was possible, but he believed it because God said it. So this is an example that Paul's giving us of how he walked by faith and lived by faith. So as he's using this analogy, in verse 19 it says, and not being weak in faith, He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, what God had promised him, he was also able to perform. So that's a powerful statement. So what happens a lot of times where our faith gets sidetracked is we see God's promises and we look at them in the Bible, but then we look at our situation and just say, this, how can this be? Like this doesn't seem like this could happen because we start thinking in terms where we limit God's ability to do that. We limit God's power to do that. And so what Abraham did is his situation was such that God told him, hey, you're going to be a father of many nations. Now imagine meeting him and he's telling you, I'm going to be the father of many nations. And he's over 100, his wife's, I don't know, 100 or something. But they're saying, yeah, look, we're going to be the, uh, the parents of many nations. People would just think he's crazy, but he didn't think he was crazy because he knew God told him that. So he was living by faith and trusting in the Lord, putting more credit in what God told him in his promises than in how things looked in the natural realm. So in verse 22, it says, because of that, therefore, it was accounted to him 
as righteousness. So that's what made him righteous before God because he had faith. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. So his righteousness was imputed to him or given to him, not because of what he did, but because his trusting in what the Lord can do. And because of that, he was considered righteous by God. But that wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for Abraham. In verse 24, it says, but also for what? For us. This is our thing. So we can claim that as we, the, the whole Abraham thing. We can claim it as our own. We too can be righteous before God like Abraham, like David said, simply because we put our trust in God. So it says in verse 24, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So that's sort of just a summary of, of what Paul was communicating through this whole chapter. He brings it all back to Jesus then. And it's amazing because when you start to get a hold of verse 25 of chapter 4, as he goes to Jesus, so now we put our focus on Jesus and, and we bring all of this Old Testament understanding from Abraham and we pack it into now what Jesus did in this one statement that Jesus was, he was delivered up because of our offenses, our sins. So delivered up means Jesus was crucified. Jesus was killed. And that, that word because of us, that really... Is it touched me because you start to think about what Jesus did, and I thought that He did that because of me, because of us. He did that, but see, then the the raising of Jesus from the dead was now for our justification. So is that complete process that now gives you and I the assurance, and this is what Paul is trying to to communicate to us that our standing before God is so secure because it has nothing to do with what we do. It's apart from us. It's apart from good works. It's apart from the law. Do you know if you have a mentality, a works mentality, you don't have any security. You can't boast on, I know I'm going to heaven. You can't do that because you don't know. And then what's the equation? Is it 51% good and 49% bad? Is that enough? How much is enough? That's a terrible way to live. And here Paul just gets rid of all that. And he says, you're standing before God. It's completely based on what Jesus did. Verse 25, 100%. And so if you believe in that, then you have this utmost confidence that you live your life every day with. And I hope none of you doubt your salvation. And I know some of us do, but we shouldn't. Because it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. It's as sure as Jesus Christ. It's in Him, has nothing to do with us. And that's why so many people get tripped up and, and messed up because they say, I can't do it, I can't do it. And, and they don't understand that positionally it's already done. You, if you're saved, you can't be more saved. You're 100% saved. And you can't do something to make yourself more saved. 
Because Jesus said it is finished. And if you put your faith in what he did, you're completely 100% forever eternally saved. And then he talks about that in chapter 5. So we better get there. So now he says, therefore, why does he say that? Because he's talking about what he just said. And now he's going to give information connecting what he just said about our salvation. He says, therefore, having been, so you might want to note that, that's past tense. Having been justified, how fast, Amy? Like that. How? By what? By faith. So it's a, the way that word is structured, uh, having been, it's, it's an action that happened in the past that has ongoing effects. So justified by faith, what happens is we have peace with God. Do you know that if someone's not a believer... They don't have peace with God and they feel that. They may not understand and know what's going on. That's one of the greatest things that happens when we get saved is we sense this sort of relief, this sort of this burden that we carry because we're not at peace with God and we don't even know what that is. That's why there's so many diabolical behaviors that happen because people have this uh, lack of peace because they're not right with God. So they do all these Things to try to make themselves feel better or cover up their anxiety or cover up the lack of peace that's going on. And then when a person gets saved, that peace comes over that person. It's so amazing. And they realize they've been carrying this burden around that they didn't even realize. Carrying this huge sin backpack around. Everything's hard. Everything's difficult. They're trying to escape it. And the peace of God, when one is made right with God because they're justified, the peace that just floods the heart of that person, that now, now they're made right with God. These are the things we need to meditate on, that we're made right with God through faith. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace, unmerited favor, in which we stand. So that's the key. So that's what we're standing in. We're standing in, our standing is in what God has done for us. So that's a standing that's unchangeable, unmovable. It's positional. So this is positional. So our, we have to look at it as Positional and practical. Positional is where our standing is with God. When we're justified, it's set and it's done. Practically, then, it's, we go through different things in our sanctification process, and our growth process. We mess up, we have struggles, we have problems, and we learn and we grow and all those things. But that doesn't change our position at all. So we, we can't get those mixed up. The practical practice of our faith is going to waver and is a growth in process. But our position does not change because of what we do. Our position is sealed because of what Jesus has done. Does that make sense? That's important. So we have this standing, and then because of the standing, it says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
that word rejoice means a joyful confidence. So the believer has a joyful confidence in hope, meaning assurance. We have assurance of goodness towards us. And that's an assurance of a future reality in heaven. It's assurance of God's favor towards us because of our standing in Him, His love towards us. And notice, so this is how a believer enjoys their life in this sin-sick, shriveled-up world. We, we enjoy our life. We can enjoy our life. No matter what happens, and Paul's a classic example because he enjoyed his life when he was in prison. He enjoyed his life when he's going through shipwrecks. and all. How did he do that? Because he enjoyed his standing before God, which gave him supernatural spiritual peace and could not change. And as he's going to say in a second, everything that happened to him contributed to his growth in the grace of Jesus Christ. So watch this. In verse 3, it says, not only that, as if that wasn't enough. Like, you could take chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, and just be done. Put it on your wall somewhere, and live by that, and you're done. You will be a peaceful, rejoicing, confident, happy person. But there's more. Because there's more to life than that, right? So we go through stuff. So he addresses that. In verse 3, he says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. That word tribulations is interesting. One definition of that that I liked was stress-filled problems. We glory in our stress-filled problems. So you may be saying, okay, wait a second. You had me at one and two. I like that, but now you're saying we're to glory in stress-filled problems. Another uh, way to look at that word tribulation is pressure. So I bet every one of us can relate to that right now. We're feeling stress-filled problems and pressures. And Paul is saying because of his standing that is secure, his standing that has made him right with God, that has given him peace, that can't change, that gives him access, that gives him favor, that gives him inheritance, and all of those things that he stands in, he's enjoying, and then when he gets hit with the things of the world, the way he looks at it is because he's so confident and secure that those things that are happening, now he, he glories in them. And how does he do that? Watch what he says. He unfolds this. He says, knowing that, so there's something we have to know then. And this may be why some of us have a really hard time glorying in our tribulations, because we don't know this part, maybe. Knowing that tribulation produces. So I remember a long time ago, my pastor I didn't even remember, you know, was this verse or anything, but he always used to say, tribulation produces, tribulation produces. And I always remember that. It, st- it stuck with me. Because of what that means is, tribulations or stress-filled problems actually contribute or they work something. They're actively doing something 
that I want to happen. I don't like the process, but this is the process that God uses. Stress-filled problems is one of the processes that God uses to bring about in my life what I really want. And this is what he's explaining. So what I really want is he's saying these tribulations, they're working. They work perseverance. So perseverance, that Greek word is hupomone. That word means a person's ability to stay in the fire when it gets hot. So this is something that grows in us, that develops in us through stress-filled problems. If we apply faith to our stress-filled problems, we'll grow in our ability to stay under the stress-filled problem and allow that stress-filled problem to work out things in us to bring about better things, better quality of our relationship with God. So when we don't have very much hoopamone, what we do is every time something gets hard, we're out. We're out. I'm out. It's too hard. I'm out. We just run. Do you know there's a lot of runners in Christianity? They just run around, and they run in here, and then something gets hard, and then they run over there. They run somewhere else, and they've been running like that for a long time. And God says, hey, I'm trying to deal with these issues. Don't run from your sanctification. And you may say, well, that person offended me, and I don't like the way this church does this or that. Well, maybe God is trying to grow you. Don't run from your sanctification. What happens when you run from your sanctification? You stay the same. And when God saves us, He's growing us to bring about greater things in our relationship with Him, and stress-filled problems do that. So Paul understood that, and so we know what Paul went through. We just went through the book of Acts, and he saw stress-filled problems as an opportunity to grow in his relationship with God. And because of that, he, he welcomed them. And he said, this is going to do something for me. But as he welcomed them, during those stress-filled problems, what he did is he exercised his faith in those problems. And that's how you do it. What happens when you exercise your faith? Same thing as if you exercise your biceps. Who has big biceps here? Kim, look at Kim's biceps. So if you want to know what big biceps are, look at Kim's biceps. So our faith is like that. Our faith grows when we exercise it. Stress-filled problems give us an opportunity to exercise our faith. And faith is something like a muscle that grows. So our faith is so important to God. He says it's more precious. Peter said this in in, uh, gold and rubies. And so any material object that we find so valuable, he says our faith is so important. And God sees us as so important that he'll allow us to have stress-filled problems so the greatest and most important thing a believer can have is strong faith will grow. So how's your hoopamone? Is your hoopamone good? Well, let's get it better. Let's allow God through those stress-filled problems to work those things out. James chapter 1, verse 2, it's the same thing. I uh, count it all joy when I go through these various trials. And he says, let patience have its perfect work 
That word patience is hupomone. It's just building the strength to stay in the battle. So tribulations produce this perseverance, and that perseverance develops character, which character is, one word for it is experience, and another word for it is trustworthiness. So through our exercising of faith through trials, stress-filled problems, tribulations, then we grow in our ability to walk in faith and stay the course and not be wishy-washy, unstable Christians who are just all over the place all the time. Because we don't allow the process of God's sanctification to occur, and because that, we just don't grow. And it's vital that we grow in our faith. This is what the will of God is, that we are sanctified, that we grow. But there's such beauty in our growth because God is refining all the things out of our life that are not good and that hurt us and that sabotage us and trap us. He's refining those things out. So he brings about just this great intimacy. And in James, it says, so that we'd be complete and lacking in nothing. So it's the development of our faith. And then he says character and that character hope, which is confidence. How do we get confidence and hope? How does our hope grow? So the end of this process is that we become a people who are so confident in God because we get to see him pull us through these things all the time. Right? So it's it's sort of like, say, maybe being in the military. And you, you hear the phrase that if I was in a foxhole, I'd want that person or I wouldn't want that person type of thing. Well, this is what happens when we submit to God in the trials. Those trials start to work on things on the inside of us to the extent where we become very faithful and, may I say, stable in our faith. We're not all over the place, but we're stable and we have this confidence in God. So when the trial comes, we have this confidence. That's what hope is, this confidence to say, well, well, God is going to pull me through and God is going to work something in my heart, in my life. This this is okay. I'm going to be okay. God is greater than this problem. And so this is how we grow in our faith. Do you know you you won't grow if you don't submit to this process? Do you know the children of Israel, God wanted them to go through this process, but they got right to the border of Kadesh Barnea, which is the border of the promised land. And they said, the giants are too big in there. It looks great. The fruit's really big and juicy, but there's there's people in there that are too big. And, and so we don't want to go in, even though God said, I'll take care of those people for you. And you know what they did? They just went around in circles for 40 years in the desert. You imagine that? God says, you can have this. And you say, no, I don't want that. I'm more comfortable staying outside and not walking by faith. So I'm just going to eat dirt for 40 years until I die. You know, a lot of Christians are like that. They won't exercise their faith. They won't go in obedience. They won't take the territory that God has given them. They won't allow the process of growth and development to to happen. And as soon as something difficult hits, they go into secular ways to handle things. And they run away from 
the things of God, the people of God, and the, the instruments of our development of God. They stop reading their Bible. They start worshiping. They get cynical. And this happens a lot. And God says, hey, you can't run from your heart. And you think, well, if I go to move over here or do something, it'll be better. You can't run from your heart. You take it with you. And I love, and I see we're not going to finish, but I see uh, we'll end in chapter or verse 5. That's a good place to end. But uh, John Corson used to say that it's like having Limburger on your mustache. So Limburger is very smelly cheese. And there are people who go around with Limburger on their mustache. So they say, everything smells. Everything's, and it's like, well, you have Limburger on your mustache. But they think everybody else is terrible, and they think all their problems are terrible. And, but, you know, the problem is, is within. The problem is something that God wants to deal with in your heart. So stop running. Don't run from your sanctifier. Don't run from your growth. Don't run from your development. Whatever station of life you're in or whatever, if you're thinking about, I want to do something easier and I want to get away from this, well, really pray about that. Because have you submitted in that situation and exercised your faith so that God is using that situation to grow you? Or are you just trying to look for something easier? So outwardly, maybe it'll be easier, but inwardly, you're not going to grow like God wants you to. And that happens a lot. And so let's just finish uh, this last uh, little statement in verse 5, and then we'll call it a night. So he says, now hope does not disappoint. Now that should really strike us. Because what happens if we submit to this process, contrary to just about everything that happens in life is so disappointing. When you think about life, one word to describe it is it's disappointing. But God says to the believer who has this standing and joy and commitment and is thankful and thinking about and meditating about his relationship or her relationship with God. And that's what's uh, significant about that person. That's their identity. That's how they live their life. Verses 1 and 2 then when the things of life start to occur, that person can embrace these things as a greater opportunity to grow. And then the end of that is you get this confidence in God and who He is, and you grow in your ability and your strength and your inner person. And then He says, then you are a person that has come to a place where you're relying on God's working in your life and not on something in the world in your life, and that'll never disappoint. This is a hope that never disappoints. But watch this last verse. Now the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You know what that means? There's a payoff. There's a payoff. Tribulation produces, right? You stay in there and it's hard and you trust the Lord and you're standing on His promises and you're saying, Lord, I trust you. I believe you just like Abraham did. And you know what happens at the end of that? 
is that you experience the love of God in a way that had you not gone through this process, you have never experienced the God in that way, the love of God in that way. And I mentioned, I don't know, a couple weeks ago or something, I said, to, I've always observed the people who go through the hardest things always seem like they love God the most. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? And this is why. This is why right here. Because those who submit themselves to, to, to God and allow Him to work in their life, what you will find is the love of God at the end of that. That's the payoff. And when you know the love of Christ like that, you don't want anything else. The world can never give you anything even remotely close to the love of God being poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest thing that can happen to a human being, God's love. And, and notice, poured out. It's not a little trickle. It's poured out in your hearts. So, guys... This is the opportunity for us to grow. This is the opportunity to us to know the depths of God's love. And mind you, it doesn't, if we don't go through this, we won't know God as much as we could. We won't understand the love of God, the peace of God. We, we won't have confidence in Him. And so, isn't God good? works completely different than we think, but so much better. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our ways, or our thoughts. And so just as we finish this up, let's just, let's just enjoy our salvation. Let's enjoy God. Let's meditate on His love for us. Let's meditate on our salvation and allow that to did you know that as we do that, it'll, it'll actually rewire our brain in many ways? That's why in Psalm 1, it says to meditate on the Word of God day and night. And like a tree planted beside the water. It's like we're, we're, all, we're blessed when we meditate on the Word of God. And this is an amazing section of Scripture to continue to meditate and remember how good God is to us. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and online. I pray a blessing on them, Lord. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in a very special way um, now and as they go. I pray that uh, they would have confidence in you, enjoy you, rejoice in their salvation. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. All God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. We will see you Sunday, Lord willing, if not sooner. Have a great night.